blah 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 hey jer it's something for nothing the rush fan cast hi steve that was an interesting intro yeah i was gonna do the whole podcast that way but probably people will get a little annoyed they might. They'd understand you less than usual. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter. We are at RushFanCast. Instagram, you can find us at the TheRushCast. Email Jerry. Give him an email that just says blah, 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 blah. <laughs> TheRushCast at gmail.com. I think you would enjoy that. I would. Follow or subscribe via your favorite podcast app. The bass intro and outro, that is Lex. He is not blah. He is very unblah. And Jerry, I hope you have an email to get us started before we get into our great topic today. I do. This is from Tony, a new listener. Oh, nice. What's up, Tony? Thanks for listening. He said, a few days ago, while feeling a bit blue on the anniversary of Neil's passing, I was poking around for Rush content and came across your podcast, which I have really been enjoying. I say I have lots to catch up on, which I look forward to doing. And then he starts with his Rush origin story. In 1979, I was 10 years old and just starting to define my taste in music. If you would have asked me who my favorite band was, I would have answered Supertramp. But the spirit of radio was getting tons of airplay here in Calgary. Hooray for CanCon laws. And I glommed <laughs> onto it almost right away. It had the hard-rocking sounds I learned to love from my older brothers with the dash of the new wave I was just getting into. Plus, my brother was a drum enthusiast, and he raved about how this guy was the best he'd ever seen. I believe he saw them on the Permanent Waves tour. When Moving Pictures hit and Tom Sawyer came out, I once again loved it. CBC broadcast the Exit Stage Left concert, and that's where I heard most of the songs for the first time. When Subdivisions came out, I really felt like they were speaking to me directly. It felt like they were saying, we see you, hang in there, there's more to life than this. That's why on that fateful day on a bus home from junior high chatting with my new friend Joe, when he asked, who is your favorite band? I said, I don't really have one, but I guess if I did, it would be Rush. Turns out Joe was a diehard Rush fan. He immediately started rattling off song and album names, and we spent hours over at his place listening and re-listening, getting me up to speed. I had dipped my toe in, but Joe pulled me into the deep end, and I love him for it. After that, it was all Rush all the time. My Betamax had two things in rotation. The Grace Under Pressure live video that was broadcast on Much Music, and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I was the walking cliche nerd, putting caressive steel on in the background while playing D&D. Starman doodles on every notebook. I got to see them live on the Power Windows tour. Fourth row center. It was one of the few places that headbangers and nerds could gather and coexist peacefully without fear of wedgies. <laughs> As the 90s rolled in, I moved away from Rush a little. I must admit that period after Hold Your Fire and before Snakes and Arrows, except for counterparts, of course, is generally met with a shrug from me. But thanks to your podcast, I've started to dig back into that era and have uncovered a few gems. I have never lost my love and admiration for those earlier albums or the band. I have since become a screenwriter, and one or two of the things I have written have gotten made. I always include at least one small reference or Easter egg about Rush in everything I write. I met Getty briefly during the book signing, and all I could do was thank him. Thank him for coming out and for everything he meant to me. He probably said something back, but I may have blacked out at that point. I was a little excited. And then he ends with a very weird question. Ready for this one? Okay. Do you group Rush albums into seasons based on the feel of the music, the lyrics, or even when you first heard them? For instance, Permanent Waves and Hemispheres feel like summer albums to me. Moving Pictures and 2112 are winter albums. 
probably because of the Tom Sawyer video and the fact that I got 2112 for Christmas and it was in heavy rotation for the rest of that winter. Signals feels like a spring album and Grace Under Pressure and Farewell to Kings have an autumnal feel. I can't be the only one who does this, or am I? Thanks again, Tony. Well, first of all, Tony, thanks for the email and thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Secondly, he may be the only one because that sounds a little odd to me. Doesn't it sound weird to you? (laughs) Yeah, I think he might be the only one. I'm sorry to say. I don't think I think of seasons when I listen to any music. No, I don't think so either. But now I'm probably going to, right? (laughs) Now that the idea has been planted in my head. Maybe summertime blues? (laughs) <laughs> it's summer. I don't know. I, I, I don't look, he, he may not be the only one. Maybe we'll have to find out. Shoot us an email, right? The rushcast at gmail.com. Let us know if you think of seasons when you listen to rush. That's right. And Steve, I'm sure, you know, I picked that email for a very specific reason since he's a screenwriter and he puts rush Easter eggs into his work. Uh-huh. I thought it would flow nicely into the topic today. Oh, yes, exactly. Rush in pop culture. Very good, Jer. Thank you. I learned a thing or two about segues over the years from you. (laughs) We've been wanting to talk about this topic for a long time, and we've got the perfect, perfect person to discuss it with us, the host of the Retro Zest podcast, Curtis Lanclos. Welcome to the Rush Fancast. Hey, thanks so much. Big fan of the show. I found out about you guys through our mutual friend, Vicki Hudson of uh, the Spirit of Rush tribute band here in Atlanta. Oh, yeah. And uh, I just have to say, to quote you, Steve, it's fantastic to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So, Curtis, we like to start out by asking our guests their Rush origin story. When did you first hear Rush, and how did you become a fan? Well, it, it really began for me in high school. I went to high school in the metro Atlanta area from fall of 1980 through the spring of 1984. And I guess during my high school years, I'd frequently heard all the hits from Rush, like specifically from Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures. And around the spring of 1982 or so, I was a sophomore and I went on this high school science club field trip to Fernbank Science Center in downtown Atlanta. And during the last portion of this visit, my classmates and I went to the planetarium and watched a laser show, which was projected on the upper dome of the planetarium. It was really cool. And they played lots of classic rock music during the show. But the two songs that I remembered that night were One of These Days by Pink Floyd and The Spirit of Radio by Rush. And I, I may have heard those songs before, but for some reason, they both of those songs just really grabbed me that evening. It really amped up in 1984, which was the year I graduated, because that was the year I started going to concerts. And I finally went to see Rush on the Grace Under Pressure Tour on October the 30th, 1984, at the now defunct Omni Arena in downtown Atlanta. And by the way, I did not receive a pair of 3D glasses there, so that (laughs) must have only been at that uh, show that they taped, and I think it was in Montreal for the Grace Under Pressure Tour video. I went to the show that night and this was kind of a bittersweet night for me because I picked up my girlfriend at the time to go see the show. And she informed me upon arriving at her house that she was breaking up with me and going back to her old boyfriend. 
course, my, my cousin and his girlfriend, Jackie, who's now his wife, were meeting us at the show, and I didn't have anyone else to take. So stupidly, I went ahead and took her anyway, even though she was breaking up with me. That being said, the show was amazing, and I distinctly remember I went out and bought the the Signals album on cassette a few days later because I really enjoyed hearing Subdivisions Live, which was the second song they played. And slowly but surely over time, I began to pick up all of Rush's back catalog, although I think I avoided the debut album and Caress of Steel <laughs> for many years. I guess I avoided Caress of Steel because I saw it in the bargain bin at the, at the, at the record <laughs> store. <laughs> Poor Caress of Steel. I know. It doesn't get a whole lot of love, does it? No. But uh, even though it's a great album. But it, it, eventually, I, I picked up that album as well. And, of course, I would go see them again on tour several times. Uh, I went to Power Windows. I went to Hold Your Fire, Snakes and Arrows. I went to the Time Machine Tour in Atlanta and in L.A., and I actually got a meet and greet for the Atlanta show, which was really neat. I won that in a radio contest and then saw the Clockwork Angels tour. And finally, I saw the R40 tour in Atlanta, in Vancouver, and in Seattle. So I got to see that three times. And since I was at the Vancouver show, I got to see Ben Mink perform Losing It with the band, which was incredibly satisfying. It almost felt like my whole Rush experience was coming full circle when I got to see him perform that song with them. So all that being said, Rush is my favorite band of all time, and they've definitely had an impact upon my life. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your podcast, how it got started? Well, I'm a big fan of obscurity, and I'm a big fan of minutia, almost to a fault. <laughs> and when you happen to be a cache of worthless trivia, about the 1970s and the 1980s, you really need an outlet. <laughs> uh, and I got tired of members of my family looking at me with blank stares when I would share these little facts with them. So I decided to start my own podcast and talk about subjects like why I think Lone Wolf McQuaid is a great film, <laughs> you know, even, though, <laughs> even though many other people would disagree. I haven't actually done a episode on that, but that's just what popped into my head. But mm -hmm. yeah, I started the podcast in actually right after the pandemic started in May of 2020. And uh, it's just kind of been slowly growing. I've had some nice interviews that I've done with uh, some actors from movies from the 70s and 80s. So it's it's been a nice ride and it's a lot of fun. I actually have done a handful of Rush-related episodes, some of which the two of you have participated in just via recording. In fact, I got to the point there where I, I kind of felt like I had to apologize to the listeners and say, you know, this isn't a Rush podcast, but it seems like it is with because <laughs> there were several anniversaries that came up all at once. And uh, it seemed like for two or three weeks there, I was doing Rush episodes. Anyway, it's always a lot of fun to talk about rush on the show is as well as anything else to do with pop culture. So speaking of pop culture, Curtis, what would you say your definition of pop culture is? What is pop culture? Why is it so important? I guess the dictionary defines it as pop culture, which is transmitted via mass media and is aimed particularly at younger people. Uh, another place I read that it's uh, a set of the practices, beliefs, and objects that are dominant or prevalent in a society 
at a given point in time. And it also encompasses the activities and feelings produced as a result of interaction with these objects. As it pertains to Rush, I believe on the documentary, Beyond the Lighted Stage, there was a segment on there where somebody was talking about the fact that people that were really into Rush back in the day, quote unquote, back in the 70s and 80s, are now the heads of corporations and whatnot. And they inevitably end up putting Rush into their advertising somehow as a way of uh, introducing the next generation to the band and also to pull people in to buy their product or service that are fans of the band. Pop culture is a weird beast because it seems like there's two, at least two different aspects to it. There's the one aspect where it's definitely more manufactured, like, uh, you know, like boy bands or some singers that are obviously created to appeal to a larger audience. And then there's a something like Rush, right, that starts out at the bottom and slowly just kind of percolates to the top through the people who were just fans of them and now become, like I said, into positions of power or control over movie studios or TV shows or comic books or whatever. Absolutely. Of course, the sources of pop culture, movies, TV programs, music, of course, sports, fashion, literature, Rush just slowly began to seep into a lot of these areas. As you mentioned, Curtis, as these people who grew up as children or teenagers loving Rush got jobs as movie producers, authors, that sort of thing, Rush has started to seep into pop culture because of that, right? Absolutely, yes. And I think there's a certain level of understanding that they have that a certain percentage of the public is not going to get it (laughs) because, you know, Rush is definitely a a cult band. They've always been that way, but that's really not their target audience. Their target audience is those who maybe have never heard of the band and, you know, they might hear a snippet of one of their songs and think, oh, that's really cool. I'll, you know, I'll check them out. Then also, as I said, you know, those who are already familiar with the band and think that, oh, well, this is a cool movie because they put Rush in it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. There's something about the Rush conversion experience, you know, when you become first become a Rush fan that makes people into proselytizers. They want to tell other people. There's some kind of that, that moment where you finally get it and you get into Rush. You're just like, you know, you want everyone else to come to Jesus in that same way. Mm-hmm. So you definitely want, you know, to put these kinds of things into your media just to see if other people are going to latch onto it. Yeah. And, and I think... <laughs> I think at first when, you know, someone like you or I starts to do something like that, we don't understand why more people don't get it <laughs> right. because it's, uh, they're definitely an acquired taste, but over time we just know that some people are going to latch onto it and others aren't. Now our friend, Eric Hansen of the power windows website created a page on his website, 2112.net that has an exhaustive list of rush pop culture references and literature and film. It's an amazing, amazing list. And we've thought we'd pick out a few of the ones that, that we like and talk about them. Why don't we start with the first one, Jer? You're the comic book guy here. Sure. Defenders number 45 by Marvel Comics borrows from the individualist themes of 2112, does it not? It does. It was uh, written by two guys, David Kraft and Roger Silver, but the story was plotted by 
this comic book legend named Jerry Conway, who's done so much stuff. He co-created the Punisher. He co-created Jason Todd, who was the second Robin to Batman. And he did a huge run on Amazing Spider-Man where he did some of the best issues ever, really key issues like the death of Gwen Stacy. He was the writer in those things. So I don't know if he's the Rush fan or these other two guys are the Rush fan. I'm not sure, but it's definitely a very weird comic. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm not a comic book guy, but I don't know. It just, it didn't grab me. Right. Maybe I'm just not the right audience for it. I mean, did you like the story? Oh yeah, it's got Doctor Strange in it. Doctor Strange is always yeah. great. The Defenders is like a weird, almost like an Avengers knockoff, but Avengers is Marvel too, so I don't know if they're knocking themselves off, but it's definitely a, a lower tier than the Avengers. But they definitely, in the comic, like you said, it's about a guy who wants to control everyone's minds so that there can be the perfect society where no one disagrees with one another and obviously follow what he says. Which I guess would be the ideal, right? But there are a couple of quotes from Rush songs in it. Mm -hmm. And one of the funniest ones is when this bad guy, his name is the Red Raja, he (laughs) he turns himself into a gigantic rock monster and says, truth is false and logic lost. Obey the Raja. He seeks universal peace at any cost. And then one of the characters says, he's spouting silly gibberish. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I i flipped through that comic uh it's it's actually available online and uh some of the dialogue in that was just hilarious I mean, people you know these heroes talking about themselves in the third person oh of course <laughs> i mean that's the only way you can get comic book exposition usually is to have people talking about themselves and about what's happening to the other people who it's also happening to so they know exactly what's going on. So it's just like an info dump. Yeah. And this is from the 70s too. I mean, they were just churning stuff out without really a regard for any kind of plot for the most part. But it's just an interesting thing because it's from 1977, which is, you know, a year after 2112. And already mm-hmm. the comics were grabbing onto the the ideas of it because it says at the bottom and it's dedicated to Alex Getty and Neil. The first on the splash mm-hmm. page, it says, you know, dedicated to Alex Getty and Neil. So they were definitely influenced already. And I guess in comics, especially back then, you could just kind of come up with an idea and just write it up right away. Now there's, you know, huge corporations who are trying to get the story to to plot out over years and years and years. Now it's going to affect movies. But back then it was just pretty slapdash. And uh, I just think it was interesting that they did it so quickly after 2112 and 2112 really affected people. Yeah, and this is actually the the first one on the list on that yep. 2112 website. So this is right. They, it's what they deem to be the first example of Russian pop culture. And <laughs> what's interesting is that the Red Raja, it, it's revealed that he's really Doctor Strange under the control of the star of Kapistan. <laughs> yes, the star. Yeah, so, you know, there's the red star, you know, hold the red star proudly high in hand, you know. That's right. So... That's pretty amusing, but definitely uh, an homage to 2112 there. Yeah. Now, as we get into the 80s, Rush starts to appear in pop culture in the movies. And I think this would be an area of your expertise, Curtis. Is Fast Times at Ridgemont High your favorite movie? Am I correct there? It's probably my favorite teen coming of age film. Yes. What's the Rush reference in that movie? I'm not familiar with it, but I'm sure you are. There's no dialogue about 
the band, not that I recall anyway, there's dialogue about Van Halen and Cheap Trick and Earth, Wind and Fire in the movie by, and this was all involving scenes with Mike Damone played by Robert Romanus. But the one Rush reference in the movie is when Mike Damone and his friend Mark Ratner are talking in front of the Licorice Pizza record store. I believe that was the scene where there was a cardboard cutout of Debbie Harry standing there and Damone is, you know, giving Mark Ratner relationship advice, pretending to talk to Debbie Harry as if she's the girl. (laughs) And if you look in the background at the records in the store on the display, exit stage left, there's a whole row of exit stage left albums in the background. Yeah. Because that album had just come out earlier that year, I believe, when they were filming this. And that's the weird thing about most of the 80s is that the the Rush references are just sprinkled in the background. Someone's wearing a t-shirt, there's a sticker over here, there's an album cover over here, mm-hmm. there's a poster over there. And A Nightmare on Elm Street above Johnny Depp's bed is a Grace yes. Under Pressure poster. Right. Do you know what I mean? So it's not very overt. It's just, I guess, where people could shoehorn them in that they just wanted to throw in a good Rush reference. Yeah, and then there was also the Degrassi Junior High Canadian television series. And, you know, they, they referenced that on the 2112.net website as well. And, you know, I looked at those references and that's just basically a song playing in the background. I don't know that there's any, you know, any song prominently featured there, but uh, I believe there was a few songs they used off of Hold Your Fire on that show, just in the background. Now, when we were preparing for this episode, we shared a couple of topics we were going to talk about. And one of the ones you mentioned, Curtis, was an animated film from 1985 called The Body Electric. I'm not familiar with this. What was that? Well, I was actually wasn't familiar with it until just recently. The best way I can describe it is it's a poor man's heavy metal segment. You remember the movie Heavy Metal? Oh, yeah. From, from 1981. Uh, it's along that same vain, but there's without the violence and the sex, <laughs> <laughs> all the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the animation looks very similar to what you would see in a, in a heavy metal comic book or in the heavy metal movie. And it actually combines again, combines themes and ideas from 2112. And also obviously the body electric, the song, the body electric, mm-hmm. and the story actually takes place after a robot revolution. Uh, in a futuristic dome city named Red Sector A. The film lasts for 30 minutes on television, but you know, without the commercials, it was only like 23 minutes. So I, I watched it the other day. The domed city, peak of man's technological ambition, was created for the perfection of man's machines. Worship of the almighty machines, man's ultimate creations, left him with an absolute dependency on uh, environmental factors like temperature and humidity control, uh, ionization, and and let's not uh, forget particle annihilation. The very force that is the dome of uh, Sector A emanates from the sciatic tower, the central nervous system of the city. Yeah, it sure was a perfect world for man's machines. It has you know, a plethora of Rush songs in the soundtrack. I mean, they use Red Sector A and Hemispheres, 2112, Cygnus X1, Different Strings, Jacob's Ladder, The Fountain of Lamneth, Xanadu, 
body electric, of course. They even use Working Man, but they... <laughs> yeah, it's so weird where they just put Working Man in the background. Yeah, and, and when they started playing that, I was like, how are the lyrics to that going to fit into the story? And they didn't use the lyrics. They just used the opening riff over and over again. They just kind of looped it. Yeah. And then they also used uh, part of Marathon from Power Windows. But the dialogue and the quality of the audio on the dialogue and all that wasn't all that great. It sounds like it was just kind of thrown together. But the use of the Rush music in it, to me, proves that Rush music fits perfectly into a sci-fi story. Right. I think Rush could have very easily scored a movie like Flash Gordon instead of Queen, you know? Right. It was directed by a guy named David Feiss, who actually was an animator on that movie Heavy Metal. So that's why it has such a heavy metal feel to it. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense then. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that, you know, for the most part, the songs that they use aren't used to propel the story at all. It's just in the background. Right. (laughs) They just use it as like the soundtrack, but it's not even like a soundtrack. It's like the bed underneath like some dialogue or something like that. It's just jam packed with snippets of Rush songs for no obvious reason whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I believe they use different strings during the the scene between the lead character and the woman, uh, kind right. of as a love theme or something like that. But that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the closest thing to being a love song by Rush. You know. Yeah. Right. But yeah, it was really interesting. Now, as we get to the late '80s and '90s, a show debuts on Comedy Central, Jerry, called Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand. I know. I'm very much aware. This is going to prove that we're total geeks because not only are we Rush geeks, we're Mystery Science Theater 3000 geeks. Right. And Rush was referenced, I don't know how many times on that show. What would you say? Well, I looked it up on the, on the Power Windows website. They have them in 12 different episodes just saying something about Rush. About time. I wasn't doing nothing. <laughs> you know, in that light, she looks just like Getty Lee. <laughs> And I remember we we used to get together mm-hmm. once a week or so and just watch whatever episode just happened to be on that week. Right. And I remember that some of the Rush references, like there would be like somebody, some weird drums in the background and somebody would be like, oh, Neil Peart's coming or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like the funniest, just the random thing, like they were in, somebody showed like some cabin somewhere in the middle of Canada or whatever. And they're like the birthplace of Getty Lee. It's the most <laughs> random the most random things like they always do. And it seems to me like that, that will be such a rush show. I could picture Getty and Alex hanging out, watching mystery science theater for some reason. I don't know why. Oh, they're total fans. Oh, are they really? Yeah. Because they thank mystery science theater in the liner notes of counterparts. I didn't even know that. See, you're, you're a bigger rush fan than me. There's a quote on power windows from Alex because Alex is not actually referenced on mystery science theater. (laughs) They they mentioned Getty and they mentioned Neil, but they never mentioned Alex. So he said, I think it should be mentioned that one of the high points of Getty's career and Neil's career was the fact that they have both been mentioned on Mystery Science Theater. And I haven't because I'm a bum. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Your thoughts on that show, Curtis? Are you familiar with it? Watch it. I've I've watched a a few episodes of that. I know that those are the same guys that do riff tracks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the riff tracks. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, uh, what was it? Alien from L.A., which was released in 1985. One of the guys says, hey, it's the band Rush. 
and there's <laughs> there's three guys there who vaguely look like a trio, you know. Yeah. And then in Hobgoblins in 1985 as well, someone during the movie is air drumming. And then Tom Servo says, oh, look, it's the true story of Neil Peart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very fun to watch Mr. Science Theater and, and just pick up on some of the references to Rush because those guys are total nerds, really. Their, their references are so obscure sometimes. I'm not sure that any one person could get every reference. So it's pretty cool to watch like uh, a movie like Time of the Apes, which is one of the worst movies ever. Do you remember that movie, Steve? Oh, yeah. Oh God! It was a it was a Planet of the Apes ripoff from Japan. I think. I think I saw that. God, it's so bad. But there's a great one in there where he's just like Neil Peart on drums. It's like somebody's playing the drums <laughs> in the background, and Tom Server just goes Neil Peart on drums really fast, so you almost miss it. There are so many TV series that reference Rush. Starting in the '90s, it just kind of really ramps up. And right. Freaks and Geeks is one where there are so many Rush references, it's insane. That's uh, 14 mounted toms, eight floor toms, four splashes, two gongs, uh, 10 cowbells, four rides, five snares, man, a roto-tom rack. And it's all mounted on my infamous quadruple kick drum system. Six more pieces, I got a bigger kit than Neil Peart from Rush. Now, the show aired very briefly from September 1999 to July 2000. The characters were Rush fans on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Jason Siegel. I'm sure he's the big Rush fan on that show. Mm -hmm. He's definitely the one who gives a lot of the references. Episode number 13, I believe, which was called Smooching and Mooching. <laughs> yeah. uh, his character was at uh, the Weir's house, who's the, the main family uh, during quiet hour, and he breaks you know, he breaks the silence by blasting Tom Sawyer from <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay's room. Lindsay is played by Linda Cardellini, who's also in, uh, what is it? Dead to me. Yeah. Dead to me. She's also in the Marvel universe. She plays right. uh, Hawkeye's wife. Yeah. Anyway, Jason Siegel's character is in her room and her dad, who's played by Joe Flaherty, uh, <laughs> from SCTV goes up to the room and says that drummer you're listening to, he's terrible. <laughs> right and of course uh nick uh jason siegel's character uh responds that well that's neil pert right <laughs> that's the way i always used to pronounce his name too but it's actually peart yeah but uh he you know he says he's the greatest drummer alive and joe flaherty responds well neil pert couldn't drum his way out of a paper bag i grew up with gene krupa and buddy rich <laughs> oh that drummer you're listening to yeah He's terrible. <laughs> That's Neil Peart. That's he's the greatest drummer alive. Well, Neil Peart couldn't drum his way out of a paper bag. You want to hear drumming? All right, come on, I'll play you drumming. And then he takes him into the other room and starts playing the records for them. And he's just and Jason Siegel's character just kind of loses his mind over how great they are. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, Joe Flaherty was also Count Floyd, who was in the um, right in the video for uh, the opening video for the weapon when they whenever the band would play the weapon live, which I believe was only on the signals tour in the Grace Under Pressure tour. The Freaks and Geeks is like the beginning of when people who were Rush fans in their teens can do something with Rush in an actual storyline of an actual show, because up until then, you know, there's nobody who was actually 
writing these things for that movie or whatever. You can only put those little references in. Here we have Judd Apatow, who's obviously a Rush fan. On his own show, he just throws Rush in, right? This is other famous scene where Jason Siegel's character is playing the Spirit of Radio on his drums. And you see it from his perspective, and he's, he's killing it. He is killing it. He's singing along and playing. But then you see it from his dad's perspective as he walks into the garage or whatever, or down to the basement. And he's just bashing away, and he sounds terrible, which is perfect, which is just the most perfect feeling for like most Rush fans, right? When, especially when you're a teenager, you think you're at least air drumming perfectly, but you never, you're never air drumming perfectly. Yeah, the, the 2112.net website, the Power Windows website points out that uh, there's one episode <laughs> of Freaks and Geeks that has a couple of anachronisms, which only diehard Rush fans would notice because the show is supposed to be set in late 1980. But in the opening scene of this episode, Nick's playing an eight track of Exit Stage Left. And this wasn't released until October of 1981. Yeah. And also character named Ken is seen wearing a retrospectives t-shirt, which wasn't released until 1996. So <laughs> <laughs> I believe that happens a good bit on another show we're going to talk about later, but uh, we'll save that for then. Yeah. Somebody, whoever is their continuity editor, needs to do a little more homework. Yeah. But I'm just amazed by just the list of shows that reference Rush. Gilmore Girls, Futurama, Family Guy, of course, How I Met Your Mother, Archer, South Park, of course, Trey <laughs> Parker and Matt Stone are huge Rush fans. Right. And I think the show you were about to talk about, Curtis, is The Goldbergs, correct? Yes. You sent us an episode of The Goldbergs that I hadn't seen that was basically Rush from beginning <laughs> to end i couldn't believe it for your sake back off my girl not your girl i love you erica you will be you guys need to get a clue there's only one band on the planet that matters rush here we go they're not the canned garbage that you listen to they're real they're from canada it's super cold so they have to rock super hard to stay warm i'll take your word for it why well, take my word for it when you can come to my corolla and find out for yourself unless you're afraid of being alone with you and your rusted out piece of crap for sure. Hey, Johnny Atkins respects women. He has bad hair days too. Not many though. Yeah. Well, there, a little bit of setup is, is required here. Uh, first of all, for anybody who hasn't seen the Goldbergs, it's basically an eighties version of the show, the wonder years. That's the way I describe it. Mm -hmm. The show is narrated by the older version of the main character on the show. Yeah. And in this case, the, the actor who, who does the narration is Patton Oswalt, mm -hmm. but the show is very loosely based on the childhood of the show's creator, Adam F Goldberg. And I say it's loosely based on it because there's a lot of artistic license taken, not only with his life, but also with the eighties in general, because at the beginning of each episode, Patton Oswalt starts the narration with it was 1980 something so you don't know actually what year it's supposed to be representing and that's by design because they're skipping all over the place with the pop culture references and you know there's just anachronisms galore if for those who are you know sticklers for things like that but be that as it may it's a it's a very entertaining show and uh the show started off kind of slow i remember watching it with my son during the first season but as it progressed, it really began to pick up steam because they began to do tribute episodes to movies and TV shows and music of the 80s. 
So it's really a, a pop culture smorgasbord. And uh, I need to provide some background on one of the supporting characters to talk about what we're going to talk about. There was a classmate of one of the Goldberg siblings named Johnny Atkins. He first appears in season three of the show, and he's played by Sean Marquette. Much like Adam's brother, Barry, Johnny has this very high opinion of himself, and he has a ponytail and loves playing the saxophone, and so much so that he carries one around with him much of the time, and he also plays the drums. But the main reason he got my attention was because he's a huge fan of Rush, and he's always seen wearing a T-shirt from one of their tours. So once I began seeing a Rush T-shirt, sported in several episodes of the show, I knew someone on the production team, perhaps Adam Goldberg himself, had to be a big fan of the band. And I later discovered that Goldberg also wrote the 2009 film Fanboys, in which Sean Marquette's older brother, Chris Marquette, stars. And this film also has a, a couple of big Rush references in it as well. Rule number one, in my van, it's Rush. All Rush, all the time, no exceptions. Anyway, I thought it was really cool that Rush was getting a lot of exposure as a result of this recurring character of Johnny Atkins on the Goldbergs, even if it was somewhat limited to something as simple as a t-shirt. However, this was all apparently a setup for an episode, which this, the episode we're about to talk about, it really blew my mind when they did this because the Goldbergs is a nostalgic show wherein primarily 80s pop music was celebrated up to this point. And then they decided to do an episode about Rush. As you said, Steve, the entire episode was yeah. about Rush, except for the subplot. This was season three, episode 21. The title of the episode is simply Rush. You can watch it on Hulu if you have Hulu. In this episode, Johnny introduces Erica, Adam's sister, to Rush by playing the moving pictures cassette for her in his car and when tom sawyer begins to play she becomes mesmerized and begins to make out with johnny <laughs> and as the episode progresses she too begins to wear rush t-shirts and places a cardboard cutout of getty lee in her bedroom and joins a rush tribute band named speed up <laughs> <laughs> yeah with, that's so funny with johnny and she also starts to date Johnny, to which her father, Murray, disapproves. And uh, as the episode progresses, things fall apart with Erica and Johnny. So she recruits her girlfriends, Lainey and Carla, to join her own Rush cover band. And they perform Tom Sawyer at the school's Battle of the Bands at the end of the episode. Back on RetroZest number 44, I did a show celebrating my five favorite episodes of the Goldbergs. And this one obviously was number one on my list because I, I was just really blown away that they dedicated a whole episode to Rush. Yeah, the great thing about this episode is that it shows that conversion moment. It shows the moment mm -hmm. where Lindsay hears Rush for the first time and her eyes just open. And she's like, <laughs> I cannot. And every other, every other type of music she listens to just it's thrown in the garbage. She plasters over her posters with rush posters you know she she was into debbie gibson that week she had like a little black hat on that debbie gibson used to wear now forget it she's all rush t-shirts all the time you ready to step into the musical cocoon and emerge a rock and roll butterfly just play it so i can be proven right 
in that moment, my sister's mind unlocked as she was ushered into a world of prog rock. It was an instant attraction in more ways than one. I don't even know what's happening right now. Oh my, this is a terrible mistake. One you'll make again. Don't tell anyone. I can promise that I won't, but I definitely will. And it's something, especially in the 80s, I think that we all went through. Yeah. Where you hear Rush for the first time and you're like, this is it. This is who I am now. This is my identity. And it's just so funny because the character of Johnny Atkins is kind of insufferable. He's a very insufferable person. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I don't know about you guys, but I've known some Rush fans who are like that, who are just like, this is it. This is the only band that matters at all. And you're going to listen to them whether you like it or not. <laughs> he never shuts up about them. You know, like you said, that was the, the big joke of the episode was, is that there was always a band of the week that, you know, teenagers were into back then, including Erica and her friends. Yeah. And uh, when the character who has a crush on Erica, who actually ends up becoming his boyfriend later in the show, spoiler alert. <laughs> As my mom was coming to terms with who her favorite child was, my sister had no doubts who her new favorite band was. Wait, what is happening? Why are you covering up WG? Because I discovered something infinitely better. Rush. Holy crap. You made out with Johnny Atkins. You're a bad little girl. How could you possibly know that? Because he's the only other person I know who's obsessed with that lame wizard band. Also, he's telling everyone. Oh, God, I knew I shouldn't have made out with him. You don't actually like him, do you? I don't know. He's like a cocky band nerd. But he's also honest and deep. But he also has a ponytail. It's so confusing. I've dated the biggest jerks on the planet. Trust me. You need to end up with a nice guy like Barry. Okay, please don't gag when I mention your brother's name. Why are you gagging? I'm sorry, but her gaggy face is making me gag. You know, he shows up dressed up like the lead singer of A Flock of Seagulls, and he's got his right. hair up. You know, we got, got he said he put honey in his hair to make it stick up, and he's been fighting bees all day and, uh, <laughs> you know, to try to impress her. And she says, oh, well, we're, that's so last week. We're not into them anymore. Right. There's one point in the episode after she breaks up with Johnny, she's rolling up all of her rush posters and getting ready to throw them away and everything. And her dad comes in and says, you know, Hey, don't, don't throw out something you love, you know, over some guy. And so that's when she decides to go recruit her friends, start their own rush tribute band. So she didn't, I guess the message there was, is that she might not have been fanatical about rush from that point on, but she didn't just diss them from that point on because of Johnny. And and the same thing happened to her two friends. She plays a rush song for them and they immediately fall in love. Right. Right. (laughs) Another show connected with rush is trailer park boys. Now I must confess, I've never watched trailer park boys, but Alex Lifeson appeared on an episode. (laughs) Did he not? Most rock stars are supposed to be really approachable and really fun and easy to talk to, but for some reason, Alex wasn't. I need four tickets to your concert right now. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. Look, look I'm not a ticket agency. I'm sorry, I can't do help you with the tickets. You can't give me four tickets to your concert. I'm sorry. It's just one of these guys that, hey, I don't want to talk to anybody, and I'm a big fancy rock star, and you can't talk to me, so it pissed me off. Yeah, I actually watched it today uh, for the first time. I'm, I'm like you, Steve. I've never actually watched the show, but I know that I've heard Rush fans talk about it. This was apparently season three, episode five. It was called Closer to the Heart. And the character of Bubbles is trying to get tickets to go to the Rush concert. And 
several different things happened that prevent him from getting the tickets. And so uh, his friend Ricky decides to kidnap Alex from the hotel. (laughs) And by the way, Alex is in room 2112 at the hotel. (laughs) And I don't think I've ever seen Alex use the F word so many times in in one setting because he's (laughs) really pissed off that he was abducted, uh, understandably so. Yeah, it's Alex Lason. Alex, this is uh, uh, it's uh, Gord uh, Downey. This is Alex. Hey, play I Like the Rock. That's April Wine. Well, play that Diane Sawyer song. Let's fucking play something. That's why you're here. But yeah, I mean, a number of things happen, and then Bubbles actually ends up becoming Alex's guitar tech at the show, and uh, that gives them a limousine ride home, and they play uh, Closer to the Heart together on... Uh, they each have a guitar and they're play- both playing closer to the heart. Alex is showing bubbles how to play it. So, yeah. So it was a, it was a cute little episode. And I don't think we can talk about Russian pop culture without talking about their appearance on the Colbert Report. Thank you very much. My guests tonight have 24 gold and 14 platinum records. <laughs> In today's economy, I'm guessing they're considering melting them down. Please welcome Rush! July 16th, 2008. They appeared on US TV for the first time, Jer. And you love that episode. I do. It was the first time in like 33 years or something like that because they had been on like Don Kirshner's rock concert Mm -hmm. late night, which I'm pretty sure I saw because I used to watch Don Kirshner all the time when I was a kid. But the, the weird thing is, Steve, is we saw them at Jones Beach two days before this episode aired and they didn't mention it from the stage. Do you remember that? I do remember that. I'm kind of pissed that we didn't know they were going to be on Colbert. We could have went to that. I know we could have gone, right? That would have been amazing. How great would that have been? Yeah. It's a fantastic episode because Colbert, (laughs) Colbert does the funniest things. And, um, and I would just like to apologize I'm sorry it took me so long to get my show together. Um, okay. But thank you for waiting. Our pleasure. It's all we as, do. as you've heard, um, my director, uh, Jimmy, is a huge, huge fan of you guys. What, what are your fans called? Um, Russians? <laughs> <laughs> do you guys have special names for your fans? Uh, not really, no. No? They no. all have their own names. Each of them? <laughs> That's nice. That's very thoughtful of you. Well, I've got, I've got some questions I want to ask you, but uh, Jimmy's got some questions he insisted uh, that I ask you also, so I'll, I'll start with one of his. Um, you've been touring for over 30 years. Uh, do you ever get tired of being so awesome and kicking so much ass? That's very nice. No, I think we've gotten used to it. You've gotten used to it now? That episode, do you guys feel like that broke the dam even more for Rush's pop culture references to just explode? I mean, they became mainstream almost at that moment, don't you think? I think so. Because Colbert was, again, if you're talking pop culture, he was becoming pretty, pretty famous at that point. You know, he had just gotten the show or he had been on the show for a while from The Daily Show. So he was definitely making his own waves, pop culture-wise. And to have them on and to do the things that he did with them were so incredibly funny. He asked them the craziest questions. Probably my favorite one. He said something like, you know, you guys are known for your epic songs, but there's a, <laughs> is there a song that is so epic that by the end of it, you were influenced 
by the beginning of it because it was so earlier in your career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those questions were pretty much filled with a lot of things that would be considered to be inside jokes. <laughs> right. To the fans of the band. Well, that's the thing is that it was very, it was geared toward Rush fans, really, as opposed to anybody else who might have been, you know, watching the show. And the funny thing, too, is that it was episode 420 of the Colbert Report. Very nice. <laughs> which everyone who smokes marijuana knows mm -hmm. what that's about. I'm sure that was just a coincidence, though. You are yet to be inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, is there any chance your next album will be called That's Bullshit? <laughs> and soon after that, the movie that is most filled with Rush was released March 20th, 2009. I love you, man. Director and co-writer John Hamburg is a huge Rush fan. And the main characters in the movie, also huge Rush fans, Jason yeah. Siegel, who was on Freaks and Geeks, of course, and Paul Rudd, they bond over Rush. Their characters bond over Rush. Sid and I have gotten pretty good at a couple of Rush songs. What do you mean, like fast-paced rock? No, like Rush, like the band Rush. I don't know them. The Holy Triumvirate. The Wait, you don't know Rush? No. You tell you don't know Rush, the no. band? No, mm-mm. Exit the Warrior, today's Tom Sawyer? No. All right, I'm gonna hit you up with a little iTunes action. I cannot believe you've never heard Rush. So when am I gonna meet this guy who's stolen you away from me? <laughs> Pretty soon, actually. I invited him to that little engagement party my parents are throwing for us. Wow, Peter, this is serious. Oh, it's mellow. Besides, I wanted to introduce him to Haley. Oh, that's interesting. Right? Yeah, I like that. Hey, let me ask you something. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Yes. Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! You want to get some Neil Pert all up in you? I don't know. Well, prepare to be Russified! Your thoughts on that movie, Curtis? The scene where they go to the concert together. Of course, there's a lot of other uh, Rush talk and everything leading up to this point, but uh, apparently Jason Siegel's character, Sidney Fife, I believe was his name, scored some tickets to the one of the Snakes and Arrow tour shows, and he took uh, Peter Clavin, who was played by Paul Rudd, and his fiance, played by Rashida Jones, to the show with him. And that whole scene, they're playing Limelight, and that is such an accurate depiction of how two male friends who are yeah. huge Rush fans would act at a Rush show, yet simultaneously illustrating how many a guy's date would act. <laughs> <laughs> right. We never acted that way, Jared, did we? Well, no, we were, we were never dating, so I guess that's, that's true. Why. We didn't have girls with us, that's for sure. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that was it was just classic. And of course, they I believe in the end credits, Paul Rudd and Jason Siegel are playing Limelight, or they're singing anyway. And then of course they return for the post concert. Oh my God. Scene that they did where on the time machine tour. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where Jason Siegel eats Neil's sandwich, which I just think is the weirdest thing in the world. There's a sandwich that says Neil's sandwich on it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you can't eat Neil Peart's sandwich. <laughs> yeah. Paul Rudd said, I told you not to eat Mr. Peart's sandwich. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, Neil, and Neil says, it's just Peart. And they said, are you sure that it's not Peart? <laughs> And then, and then Getty responds, I think he would know. <laughs> How do you do? My name is Sidney Fife, and this is uh, my man, 
Peter Clavin. Hello. <laughs> and we're just the biggest Rush fans in the history of the planet Earth. The biggest. Right. Again. Because we would do these Rush jam sessions oh my in my man cave. You're what? Oh, that's my garage. I'm sorry. Um, you guys should totally come hang out sometime. It's just like guys being guys. We jam out. Yeah. We hang out. Um, I have a jerk-off station. You know, the first uh, uh, song that we ever uh, uh, jammed out to uh, was uh, Tom Soye. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we, you know, we couldn't do the drums. No one can do the drums like you. What we did uh, is like, what did you call that song? Oh, I know it's Tom, uh, you, it's called Tom Sawyer, but I love it in the song when you go, uh, you know, modern day warrior, mean, mean, try today's Tom Sawyer, mean, mean, pride. I don't think I say it like that. No, I'm pretty sure you say Tom Sawyer. Hey, is that my sandwich? Sydney, I told you not to eat Mr. Payart's sandwich. It's just Peart. You sure that it's not Payart? I think he would know. Are you sure? Because we're pretty big fans. Chill, man. Chill, man. Look, guys, it's been a long night. Oh, tote, tote, tote. Mug out. Uh, we'll I just got to say, though, to, uh, before I go, that was such a sweet ass set. Uh, I was, I was, I was like, oh, freak, freaking out. The whole moving pace, right? And, and then with the, when you were, when you were playing all the drums, is, is that, is that hard? Yes, it's hard. Guys, you gotta go now, all right? Now. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Let's get out, let's get no. out of their head. They Peter, no! Jamming. Hold on! Guys, listen, it's my friend's birthday today. So I got him tickets to your concert, which are not cheap, by the way. We grew our show beards just for you. So the least you could do is sign my friend's nine string. You got a double neck? Do you know how to play that thing? Uh, well, not not nearly as, as good as you, but uh, I, uh, I I I have uh, been known to slap at the bass uh, big time. There's so many Rush pop culture references over the years. There's just too many to list, too many for us to mention. I'm sure right. we'll get people emailing us. You forgot this one. You forgot this one. You forgot that one. We didn't forget. We just didn't have time to get to them all. But one yeah. that's current is the new Rush pinball machine. Even in retirement, Rush is just everywhere I know. the pinball machine yeah. thing it's first of all it's awesome and secondly it's expensive it's, ex <laughs> well, it's expensive but just rush never goes away they're not going to go away right no i can't wait to play it i'm not going to own it obviously but i just hope i can track down someplace that has the pinball machine that'll be a challenge i think on the stern pinball website there's a place you can search for their pinball machines and find out Ooh, really? Yeah. So I think once the pinball machine is released, we'll be able to find it. Hopefully close to here. Well, what's the name of that place, Stephen? Asbury Park, New Jersey. The Pinball Museum. The Pinball Museum. Yeah. Maybe they'll get one. I hope so. I hope so. Curtis, this was fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Rush Fancast. Why don't you tell us what's coming up soon on the Retro Zest podcast? We'll be listening. What do you got going on? Well, coming up, I'm going to be doing an episode about Pink Floyd Animals, because that album is about to celebrate a 45th anniversary. I've got a couple of uh, guys from the In Obscuria podcast coming on to help dis discuss that with me. Their podcast is about uh, obscure rock, metal, and uh, punk music. And there's a lot of obscurities about 
that particular Pink Floyd album. So I thought they would be good guests to have on. And you mentioned Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Later this year, I'm planning on having uh, Robert Romanus, Amanda Wiss, and Kelly Maroney. I'm going to be doing a big Fast Times episode, and uh, it'll feature interviews with those actors. But yeah, you can find the show at uh, retrozest.com. That's R-E-T-R-O-Z-E-S-T.com. And if you're interested in my Rush-related episodes, go to retrozest.com forward slash Rush, and I have them all documented there in one spot. So you can you can check those out if you're interested. We're definitely interested. Anything Rush, Curtis, we are interested. Thanks so much again for joining us today. Really appreciate your time and have a great night. All right. You too. Thank you so much. Again, I said, as I said at the beginning, it's been fantastic. Well, that was a great conversation, but there's so many we didn't mention, Jer. Aqua Teen Hunger Force was one that we talked about that we, we never got to. That's right. That's a weird one, right? That's a very weird one. It's from the Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie where Neil plays the drum solo of life to bring back one of the characters from the dead. <laughs> it's so strange. And it's, it's him. It's, it's his, his voice. He did it for real. It's so weird. It's so weird that he would agree to do it, right? Right. So if you have a Rush pop culture reference that we missed, I'm sure there are hundreds, email us at therushcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are at The Rush Cast. We're on Facebook too, Jared. Don't forget. Look for us on Facebook. I know. We're on Facebook. How do you find that? I have the slightest <laughs> idea, Steve. I guess just go to Facebook and search something for nothing. There you go. Follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Bass intro and outro. That's Lex. And Jared, hope you have a great quote to wrap us up. I do. It's 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 unusual. It's from virtuality. Ooh, net boy, net girl. Astronauts in the weightlessness of pixelated space exchange graffiti with a disembodied race. I can save the universe in a grain of sand. I can hold the future in my virtual hand. I love that song. I still love it. <laughs> Thanks, Jer. All right. See you later.